God, I thank you for the gift of Scripture that you have spoken to us in a way that we can understand and in a way that, that means that we can know who you are truly and not just have to guess at who you are, not just make up our own theories and kind of take shots in the dark, but that you do speak in a, an understandable way to your people. So I thank you for the Bible and I thank you for the opportunity to open it and to read it with your people. I pray that that would be a, a beneficial and a, and a fruitful uh, experience for us this morning, that we would know you better for having spent time in your word, and that we would know better what it means to live in obedience to you and, and have uh, life in your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, my wife has been gone for a couple of days. Uh, she's on a special trip with her sisters, and uh, so, of course, in her absence, I've been pining away from for her uh, and my mind has been drawn to uh, the early days of our relationship as I've been missing her. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time. We've been friends for a very long time before we started dating. Uh, but 2003 was really the year that made uh, the difference um, for us. And there are so many things that I remember uh, from that time. Uh, we were college students at the time. I remember uh, walking with Emily to the local coffee shop called Las Spiazza. It was basically the, the perfect hangout for college students. They served uh, great coffee, and we would just uh, walk downtown uh, and, and sit down and just have a great conversation around coffee, uh, supposedly studying, but really just talking about uh, life back home in Alaska and all of these other things. I, I remember uh, that she went to every single home hockey game uh, the whole time that I was playing in college. Uh, she would get on the fan bus and, and uh, come over to the little ice arena that we played at, and I'd always see her up in the stands watching and, and uh, cheering on every single time. And then I remember our first official date. I took her to uh, see a Canadian brass concert, uh, of all things, and then we went to... Uh, went to uh, Baker Square afterward for a slice of pie and some coffee. Uh, of course, and I also remember having to tell her afterward that that was indeed our first official date and that uh, it wasn't just a couple of friends hanging out. But there were so many things about uh, that year that made our relationship click. It became clear that, that this was something that was worth pursuing and, and working on. Of course, it became clear sooner for me than it did for her, and I had to you know, spend some time kind of convincing her that this was indeed something that was special and something worth pursuing, but, but it has worked out since. And of course, our relationship has, has grown and deepened in every single respect since that time, but there's something really valuable about looking back to the very beginning and spending time reflecting on what it was that has brought us to this point uh, together. What started this whole thing that we get to experience uh, now? It's a little bit of, of what Paul is doing this morning, looking back to the beginnings of the Christian faith, that the foundation of what, what it first meant to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's doing this because this church in Corinth that we're studying right now, they really need to hear this because they've got some things that are going on there that, that are really uh, waylaying them from the importance of those core central things. Uh, this uh, past fall, we started this series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we chose this book because it deals with a lot of difficult real-life stuff. So it answers questions of, like, what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus in a difficult context where everyone else is doing something different? What does it mean to deal with sin seriously in the church? What does it look like for the church to gather together as a community that truly loves one another? And I hope this has been beneficial as we've been studying this book together. I hope you've seen in the answers to some of these questions uh, real 
actual application for your lives and for how we are to live together as well. I'm excited about the passage that we have before us this week because it's getting back to the fundamental truths and how much those matter for our lives. Uh, the text is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 34. If you haven't uh, already turned there in your Bibles, this would be a good time to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, you can borrow a pew, uh, pew rack Bible if you don't have one. Uh, and if you don't know where 1 Corinthians 15 is, that's totally fine. It's found on page 1139 of the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll do verses 1 through 34 this morning. As we look at the text, we see that it answers two really big questions. And so that's how we're going to organize our time together this morning. The first big question is, what is the gospel? It's a huge question. What is the gospel? Listen to how he begins to unfold it here. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now, Paul is about to explain what the gospel is in the next verses, but he's starting off by kind of getting the attention of his readers here. It's like back in in school days when the teacher says something like, and for the test on Friday, I need you to know, right? That's your cue to stop daydreaming about whatever it is that you daydream about. Pick up your pen and start writing down what they're going to say. This is the cue that you need to pay attention here. And he's doing this, he's getting their attention by, first of all, making it personal. This is the message that is personal to him. This is the message that I preached to you. And it's also personal for them. This is the message that you received. This is the message on which you take your stand. This is the message by which you are saved. In other words, this message that he's uh, proclaiming, the gospel, has had an impact and an effect on them. It's done something to them. It's affected their lives. And then he really gets their attention by the next barb. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So yes, they have heard this, they have received it, it has impacted their lives, but there's a possibility that all of this will be for nothing, that the whole thing will just be a vain, empty experience, and it won't actually accomplish its purpose for them. So this is really kind of getting their attention and waking them up, and now he's going to say what that gospel is. Look at the next verses, starting in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed." So now he's laying out what is this gospel that they preach? What is this gospel that they receive that saves them? Well, gospel means good news. It's good news to be announced. And specifically, it's the good news about Jesus. 
And it's encapsulated in these two really big statements. It's that Christ died for our sins and that Christ was raised on the third day. This is the core of the gospel. Everything else in this paragraph is, is supporting and undergirding those two big statements. And they really are big statements. He says these are matters of first importance. So let's look at these together. Christ died. Now this is an indisputed fact that Jesus was a real human who, who really walked on the earth and who was really killed and truly died on a Roman cross. And no one in, in Paul's day would have disputed the reality of this. And, and he even uh, uh, confirms it by saying that Christ was buried. So he died and he was buried. But then he goes on to say why this is significant. He died for our sins. In other words, the death of Jesus is not an, an empty thing. It's not a pointless thing. And it doesn't mean that he failed in his reason for coming. In fact, this is the reason that he came. That's what the Bible says. And it's why the cross has become the, the, the main symbol of Christianity. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he died in my place. He died in your place. That's what happened there. That the reality is that because we are sinners, what we deserve is to be condemned by God, to be punished by death. That's the, the guilt that weighs on us because we have rebelled against God. So if we got true justice, if we got what we deserve, we would stand before God condemned. But Jesus' death changes all of that. It means that because he died, our sins are now forgiven. He died in our place. So he took the guilt that, that is on us because of our rebellion against God, and he took it on himself, and he destroyed it on the cross. And the Bible says that now he clothes us with his righteousness. So he takes the guilt of our sin, and he destroys it, and then he covers us with his own righteousness. It's an incredible reality. Christ died for our sins. And all of this was the plan of God from the very beginning. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he says. See, the whole storyline of the Bible is building up to this. It shows the weight of our sin and rebellion against God. It shows how much uh, we, we suffer under the weight of sin and death every day. And it gives us a picture of how that can be uh, dealt with. It talks about the Old Testament sacrificial system and all those other things. And it also testifies to the reality of a God who is so loving and compassionate for us that he will stop at nothing to gain us back. It speaks, for example, of God's servant in Isaiah 53 who will come and who will suffer on behalf of the people. It says, by his wounds we are healed. Well, that's what happens in Jesus. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And not only that, Christ was raised on the third day. And that's really why the church exists today. If Jesus just died and that was it, there wouldn't be any Christian church. But God raised Jesus from death to life. And this too was according to scriptures. It was part of the great plan of God from the very beginning, that God would defeat the power of death. So Peter, one of these early church leaders, when he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 2, points back to Psalm 16.10 as, a, as a showing that this was the plan of God from the very beginning. Psalm 16.10 says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. And Peter's pointing back to that and saying, Listen, God's plan was resurrection from the very beginning. So we see in the whole storyline of the Bible that God brings life out of death. Now, the death of Jesus was indisputed. Everyone knew that he died and that he was buried. But that wasn't true of the resurrection. So Paul has to kind of build a case for the certainty of the resurrection and he does that by pointing out how many people saw Jesus after he was dead and raised to new life again. 
The first one that he appeared to in, in Paul's list here is Cephas. is another name for Peter, uh, that uh, guy who preached in Acts 2 on the resurrection of Jesus. Peter saw him, and then the 12 apostles saw him, and then a group of 500 people at once saw him, and then he appeared to James, and he appeared to all the apostles, and even Paul himself saw the resurrected Jesus. And Paul's uh, encounter with Jesus was a little different than the others. You can read about that in the book of Acts, but it was nonetheless real, and it was nonetheless life-changing. Seeing Jesus, who had been indisputably killed, who had died, who was buried, seeing him raised back to life totally transformed the people who saw him. So this list of people that, that Paul is mentioning here in these verses, those are people whose life has been transformed by seeing Jesus raised to life again. Paul himself was a great example of that. He used to think this whole Jesus thing was stupid. It just didn't make any sense. And not only was it stupid, but it was also really dangerous. He felt like he was tearing God's people apart and introducing all these things that just didn't make any sense. And so he spent all this time going around and trying to stop this whole Jesus movement from the very beginning, imprisoning people, killing people, whatever it took, because this was ridiculous. But then, Jesus, or then Paul saw Jesus resurrected. He knew he was dead, but now he sees him resurrected. And it totally transformed things for Paul. He went from being one of the biggest opponents of the church to being one of the greatest church planters in church history, going everywhere in the known world, bringing the good news of Jesus. That's the power of the gospel message, that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. So what is the gospel? It's this first big question here. The gospel is the good news that, of what Jesus has done. It's all about what he has done. Christ died for our sins he was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, he was seen by a whole bunch of different people. That's what has happened because of Jesus. And this is the foundation of the Christian faith. It's really important for us to understand that what it means to be a Christian is to believe this message, to believe that Christ died for my sins, to believe that God raised him from death to life, that he truly was resurrected. See, if, if, there's no, if there's no belief in the, in the cross and in the resurrection, then you really don't have anything left of substance in the Christian faith. So however you might identify yourself, being a Christian really means believing in the gospel message and staking your life on that truth. That's what Paul's getting at in these first verses here when he's reminding them, this is the gospel you received. This is the gospel that you took your stand on. This is the gospel by which you are saved if you keep holding fast to it. It matters that you actually believe this message. This is what identifies someone as a Christian. And of course, it's easy to fool ourselves, right? So let's say someone is claiming to be a diehard Detroit Pistons fan. This theoretically exists, right? We're in Michigan. Theoretically, some people here are diehard Detroit Pistons fans. So someone's claiming to be a diehard Pistons fan, and then you start to ask them some questions. Well, well who plays on their team right now? Well, I don't know. But I like the Pistons. They're, they're my team. I, I'm a diehard fan. And then you start asking more questions, and you find out, well, really, they're a Pistons fan when they're winning, and they're in the playoffs, and things are going well. And you want to say, okay, well, whatever you might think of yourself, you might consider yourself and identify as a diehard fan. What you are is a fair-weather fan or a, a bandwagon fan. You, you've got the categories wrong. You need to think in the right criteria, or you're going to think of yourself in the wrong way. So too for Christians, you might think of yourself as a Christian, but if you don't believe in the fundamentals of the gospel message that Christ died for your sins, that he was raised to life again, well, there's no really meaningful way in which you can be, really be truly said to be a Christian. See, whatever else you think about when you hear the word Christian, you need to think first and foremost about this gospel message that Paul has just laid out. 
A Christian is someone who stakes their life on the reality of what Jesus has done for them, that he died for our sins, that he was raised to life again in defeat of the grave. Now, I know that, that some of you have done that. You've staked your life on it. And it is the reality that drives your whole life. But I also know that others of you are still here, and you're still kind of wondering what to do with that. You've probably heard it before, but you're still trying to figure out if you really believe it. Do I really believe that Christ died for my sins? That my sins, my rebellion against God, are that bad that they need the Son of God to die for me? Do I really believe that that I can be forgiven because of what Jesus has done? Or do I really believe that God raised Jesus from death to life? I mean, that's totally outside of my experience. Do I believe that that's true, that God has really defeated even death? If you are wrestling through these questions, I I challenge you to to look at what Paul is saying here. See, he's pointing to people that that the people that he's writing to could actually go and talk to -to face-to-face. These are people who knew that Jesus was killed on a cross, and yet who saw him raised to life again after that. And this group of 500, he says most of them are still alive. So he's kind of challenging the people in Corinth here, like, go talk to these people. If this sounds like an outlandish story that's really hard to believe, go and find some of these people and talk to them. There are eyewitnesses who actually saw Jesus raised to life again. You can talk to them. And of course, you and I have the, the historical distance that we can't do that. They're, still, they're not living 2,000 years later. But we can still see the reliability that, that Paul is trying to build into his account here. He's saying there are people here who saw him. You can go talk to him. So he's trying to build it. This is a reliable statement here. So as you consider, if these are true statements, that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised to life again, consider that the early witnesses staked their whole life on it. People who actually saw Jesus suffered and died because they believed in this message. And they took their whole stand on that. So as you you consider that, do consider that eyewitness testimony, but also consider the second part that we're looking at here. Why does this matter? See, the first big question is, what is the gospel? The second big question is, why does this matter in the first place? We turn to that now. Look at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this is a big deal. Something has gone wrong in the city of Corinth. There are people in this church who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, before we get to Paul's answer to this and his argument, it's worth noting that there is a pretty easy answer to his question. Well, how can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, I mean, look at any cemetery in the world, right? In our experience, no one has been suddenly raised to new life after they've been buried. Unless we think that we are more sophisticated than the people of Paul's day, one scholar rightly reminds us, the discovery that dead people stay dead was not an achievement of modern science. Kind of a dry statement, but I think it's really good. See, people are suggesting, in light of their experience, that there must just not be any resurrection. It just is, it's outside of their their realm of experience. But what Paul is trying to press them on is to see that yes, that is true, and yet Jesus has fundamentally transformed everything. That the message of Jesus is a radical and totally new kind of a thing that changes everything. First, he's going to show them what's at stake in this. What is so bad if what they are saying is true? Look at verses 13 to 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's he's piling up the arguments for how bad it would be if what they're saying is true. Some of them are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. He's saying, listen, look at what's at stake in saying that if that statement is true, that there is no resurrection, then that means logically that Christ himself has not been raised. And look at what he's saying. If that is true, if Christ has not been raised, then the whole message of the church, the preaching that Paul and the others have done, that is totally worthless and useless. And not only is their preaching worthless and useless, so is the trust that people have put in Jesus because of that message. Their faith then becomes worthless and futile. And it also means, he says in verse 15, that they have been lying about God, which is a serious offense. It means that they stand condemned under God because they're saying things about him that are not true. And furthermore, it means that their faith is ineffective. See, their faith means that that their sins are forgiven. But if Jesus didn't raise from wasn't raised from the dead, then, then they're still stuck in their sins. There's no forgiveness of sins anymore. Their faith is empty and worthless. It's futile. And that means that everyone who died trusting in Jesus is totally lost. They're destroyed. There's no further hope for them. It means, in summary, in verse 19, that we are, of all people, pitiful, most to be pitied. Because we've staked our lives on something that's just a total lie. There isn't much more that Paul can say to build a case of how bad it would be if they were right about the resurrection, that there is no resurrection of the dead. Simply put, if there is no resurrection, everything's lost. But thank God they're wrong. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So what is so good because Jesus actually was raised from the dead? Well, in the first instance, you go back to everything that would be bad if what they're saying is true. And it's the inverse of that. It means that this preaching message is effective. It's, it's worthwhile to listen to. It means that their trust in this message is worthwhile to listen to. It makes sense. It, it means that they're not lying about God, but they're telling the truth about him. And it means that the faith that people put in Jesus is effective. And, and you aren't in your sins anymore. There is truly forgiveness of sins because Christ was raised from the dead. It means that everyone who has died believing in Jesus has certain hope. They're with Christ now. They weren't 
aren't hoping in vain. And it means that we're not the most pitiful people. It means that our life is the only one that makes sense anymore because Jesus truly was raised from the dead. And then as you look at the paragraph that we just read, what is at stake in the resurrection of Jesus is simply put that God wins. See, it's going back to the, the ultimate, uh, ultimate storyline of the Bible where God created the world good and everything in it good. And he had a great uh, purpose for his creation. When he had finished it, he said, this is very good. But then sin enters the world very quickly and, and you see the unraveling uh, of, through human history of uh, the effects of sin and, and death on the world. And then you see the cross where Jesus comes to change all of that. And the resurrection is the certain sign that that was effective, that God is going to win the ultimate victory. That's why he's pointing ahead to when Christ will put every enemy under his feet. When he returns, he will set all things right. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the great sign to us that God does win. Yes, sin entered the world. Yes, our world is full of sin and darkness and death right now. But because Jesus died, we know that our sins are forgiven, that he's taken away the penalty of sin. And because Jesus was raised to life again, we know that the grave didn't hold Jesus. It didn't win over him. God has defeated even death itself. This is the sure sign that God does, in fact, win. So as in Adam, everyone who belongs to Adam, that means all of us, are subject to sin and death. Now in Jesus, the one man, everyone who belongs to him, which means everyone who puts their trust in him, has the assurance that they will be raised from death to life. That means that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. He's the first one that guarantees more to come. So we're getting toward kind of late winter now, right? This is like the first really warm day in spring. I'm not talking about like 40 degrees or 50 degrees. I'm talking like 70 degrees and the sun is out. Just imagine this for a minute. I know it's just early February. It's going to be a while. But that first really genuinely warm day in spring, after the long, hard, dreary winter, you step outside and the sun is shining and you feel genuinely warm for the first time in months. And you look outside and even if there's a little bit of snow and ice around, your heart just changes, doesn't it? Because you know that, that summer is coming. This is not the year that winter is going to last forever. There is hope on the other side. Summer will come here. And yes, there's still going to be some cold days ahead, but yes, we will get summer again at the end. So with the resurrection, it's the, it's the first fruits. It's the sure sign that yes, God has defeated sin and darkness and death forever. Everything that is opposed to the goodness of the world that God has created will be taken care of and will be removed. Jesus has won the victory because of the power of God at work in him. That's what all of this is getting at. He will return, and every single thing that is opposed to the good rule of God is going to be subject to him. And then Christ is going to hand over the kingdom to his Father. He's not setting up a separate kingdom, but like a general coming back after a victory, he's, he's bowing to the king so that in the end, God is all in all. That's what's at stake in the resurrection. It's the question of does God win or not? That's, what's, that's what like, matters so much to us that we stake our lives on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. It means that God wins. Paul's not quite done with the Corinthians. Verse 29. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, 
Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Any Christianity without the hope of resurrection falls flat and proves to be worthless. The Christian life does not make any sense if the gospel message that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised to life again is not a true message. Now, you might have questions, by the way, on verse 29 and what this baptism for the dead is. The, the short answer is there's not really a great consensus on this, uh, but just know that all the early records show that, that the only groups who practiced this were actually uh, deviants and were not kind of uh, following the, the, the truth of the Christian message. So don't go being baptized for the dead now based on one little uh, verse. If you have more questions on that, I can talk about that uh, personally with you later. You can ask. I don't want to spend too much time on it here, but in case that question comes up in your mind, I do want you to know that there is something of an answer to that. We could talk about that later. But the point that, that's clear here that Paul is making is that the Christian life, what we do, what we experience, it doesn't make any sense if there's no hope of the resurrection. So Paul himself is a great example. He's faced all this junk in his life, all this danger, and he's risking his life all the time and if that's just because of the little short time period from his birth to his death, it's not worth it. He has staked his life on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and that's the only thing that makes sense now of his life. So what the Corinthians need to do is start believing in the resurrection. They've got to wake up and see that it matters. He says, sober up, come to your senses, stop sinning, stake your life on the truth of this great gospel message. See, Paul is showing them what is really at stake in believing the message and the truth of it. It's very easy for us, because we are imperfect humans, to get uh, drawn away from the, the central things and get into peripheral things. If you've ever watched a, a home a house hunter kind of show, you've seen this in action. I've seen just enough of, uh, of these to know that, that the way people tend to think when they are looking for a house, at least the people they get on these shows, is, is horrid. These people walk into a room and they're, they're looking at paint colors and they're looking at fi light fixtures and stuff and they're making a decision on whether or not to buy a house based on those kind of things. And you want to shake them and say, why are you looking at the color of the walls? You can paint those for almost no money at all. You can change out a light fixture. Look at the important stuff. Look at, is the foundation sound? Was it solidly built? Look at the electrical and plumbing systems. Look at the HVAC unit. Is this a well-built house or no? Why are you looking at that peripheral stuff? Look at the stuff that matters. Well, Paul's bringing them back to this. This is the stuff that matters. They're getting all excited about speaking in tongues and all sorts of other stuff that they think is really cool, but they've got to get to the foundation of what really matters, that Christ died for our sins, really and truly, according to the plan of God. That God raised Christ from death to life according to the plan of God, truly and really. This is the kind of thing that you have to come back to. See, this is the part of Christianity that really matters. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the essential core of the Christian message. And without those things, there is nothing left worth believing. The church becomes nothing more than just another social club. 
And this has historically happened in those churches and Christian gatherings that have stopped believing in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. The church has softened to become nothing more than a social club, and eventually those kind of churches end up dying. This is something worth hanging on to. The death and the resurrection of Jesus make all the difference in the world. And this isn't just a theoretical level. We try to explain to you why this is so important for us. See, this really hits home in our lives because life in this world is hard. It is difficult. Many of you are going through things right now that are very difficult things, that are weighing down your heart, that are causing you a great deal of fear and anxiety and worry. If there is no truth to the resurrection, what do you do with that? How do you do anything other than just live in despair? See, the difference this makes is that it means that there is an actual answer to the hard things in life. That God actually does win a great victory and that in the end when Christ returns, he will set all things right. The resurrection is the seal of that. It's the first fruits. You know now that yes, that will happen because God even defeated the grave and the resurrection of Jesus. It matters. We live in a world that's full of anxiety, full of uncertainty. You you look at the, the news reports, you see there is unrest everywhere in the world. There is so much uncertainty and so much junk going on in the world. People just destroying other people and and, and so many people displaced right now. I mean, apart from the direct intervention of God himself, where do you get hope for this? It's just a matter of can we solve our own problems then? I'm not going to stake my life on that. I mean, how can you live in, in, in this kind of turmoil, this kind of unrest, without knowing there is something certain and something secure? The resurrection of Jesus means that there is a hope for the future that is certain. That's why we stake our lives on this. Or or consider, to make it more personal, think about uh, if, if you start to experience severe sickness or someone you love starts to experience severe sickness, when it looks like death is looming, what are you going to do with that? See, this is the difference it makes. I've done the funeral for people who have staked their lives on the truth of the gospel message that Jesus died for their sins and that he was raised to life again. And I've done funerals for people, the family's just not sure if they ever did that. Let me tell you this, it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference how someone's family experiences their death and their funeral service by whether or not they actually believed and staked their life on this message. See, those who do say things like, this is a celebration of their life. And yes, they mourn themselves because they have lost someone they love dearly, but they have sure hope that that person is with Christ and that when Christ returns at the end, that person will be raised from death to life and they will be reunited with them and be able to experience life in God's kingdom as we were meant for it. Those who don't have that hope, their family members are always questioning There's always a question mark over that. At a personal level, just don't do that to your family. You've got to find out if this gospel message is true or not. And that's when it really matters. When you come face to face with death, or when your loved one comes face to face with death, that's when the the reality of this really sinks in. That's what's at stake in this. Do I really believe that God wins? Do I really believe that he sent his son to save me? 
See, the gospel, the core of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are not some basic information that we we learn in Sunday school, and then when we grow up to be adult Christians, we just kind of move on to the more interesting stuff. Like, okay, that's the the elementary stuff, and and you can kind of do that sort of stuff, and then you move on to the really good stuff later on. That's not how it works. The core of the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, is something that that you hold on to, and and rather than growing past it, you grow a deeper and deeper understanding and appreciation for how much this truly matters. Here's the truth. The gospel changes everything for us. The fact that Jesus actually died for our sins, the fact that God actually won victory over even death, that matters. It changes everything everything for us. And I hope that you will come to see that you can stake your whole life on the reality of that. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for both the simplicity and the depth of the gospel message. The simplicity that just in a few words we can say Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day, and Christ appeared And at the same time, there is so much significance and so much meaning wrapped up in that. For those of us who have heard this message a thousand times, I pray that you would again speak the power and the truth of it into our hearts so that we would grab hold of it, not lightly pass over it, not assume it, but really grab hold of it with everything that we have. And for those who are not yet sure of the truth of that message, God, I pray that they would keep asking questions. They would dig deeper into this to find out, is this actually true? And as they do that, I pray that you would send your spirit to confirm in their hearts and their minds that this is a message that has substance to it. And I pray that you would draw people into their lives who are able to speak the truth of Jesus to them, to be able to answer questions, to be a space where they can can actually ask their questions and get solid answers. And God, I pray that we as a church would be a community where the death and the resurrection of Jesus are of first importance to us, that the gospel is the center, the core of our identity, and that everything we do and everything we think of ourselves flows from that and comes from it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.